0: Well, good morning. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this morning. you have your Bible with you, go ahead and be turning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Jody, my wife, and kiddos would have loved to have been here, but they had other commitments this weekend, and so they send their love to you, and and uh, They have freed me to get to be here this weekend, and it's certainly a privilege and an honor for me. It's always a delight to get to be here to worship with you, to open God's Word with you. Well, Let's pray this morning before we turn our attention to our text. Father, we thank you this morning for all the glorious realities and implications of the gospel message. Lord, we always want to be in awe. We always want to be struck by the fact That we're spotless, freed, forgiven. No condemnation now stands against us. Not because of us. Not because there is any righteousness that is intrinsic to us. Not because there is anything that is good in us, save Christ alone. But only based on Jesus' perfect merit and righteousness credited to our once bankrupt accounts. Lord, thank you for all that you have done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May that gospel message and all of its truths, all of its realities, never become all too common to us. May it never become all too familiar to us. May we always stand in awe. May we always be the one who trembles before your word. God, help us to love you this morning with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we open your word. Teach us, but we pray that your spirit would minister your word exactly how it needs to be ministered this morning. We know that he will do that. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we seek to feast on your word. Thank you that you feed us not only physically, but you also feed us spiritually. You've told us in your word, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, this morning we confess we're hungry, we're needy, and we want to draw near and to feast on your word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 is our text for this morning. Romans chapter 8 has been described as one of the brightest gems in the Bible. You might remember the last time I had the privilege of being with you, I preached from Romans chapter 8. I love Romans chapter 8. And so I figured we looked at the last bookend the last time I was here, verses 28 and 29, and so what a joy and glory it would be if we could turn our attention to the first bookend, of Romans chapter 8, namely verses 1 through 4. A study of Romans chapter 8 undoubtedly reveals some of the most precious truths, some of the most glorious truths concerning what we as believers possess in Jesus Christ, namely the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. It's interesting to note that the Holy Spirit commands center stage here in Romans chapter 8. We see the Holy Spirit more in Romans chapter 8 than in any other New Testament chapter combined. And it's interesting to note, even as you look at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8 has a unique concentration of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. In chapters 1 through 7, Of the book of Romans, the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is mentioned to refer to some five times, plus or minus. And in the remaining eight chapters, the back eight chapters of Romans chapter eight, he's mentioned another nine times. But here in Romans chapter eight, there are some 20 plus references to the Holy Spirit. Again, no other New Testament chapter rivals Romans eight as far as its concentration of references to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Here in Romans chapter 8, again, we're only going to look at the first four verses this morning, but here in Romans chapter 8, we see that the Spirit of Christ, He does several things. He frees us, He indwells us, He leads us, He gives us hope, and He strengthens God's people. This morning, as we turn our attention specifically to verses 1 through 4, I think we'll see three glorious ways in which the Holy Spirit of Christ sets us free as believers. With that being the premise of our time together this morning, let's turn our attention to our text. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit pins the following words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point in your outline is this, the Spirit of Christ has set you free from the penalty of sin. If you know Jesus Christ savingly, then the Spirit of Christ has freed you from the penalty. That accompanies sin. Glance back again at verses 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul opens... Verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 with the word therefore, that connecting word therefore. And there's a question that we should ask ourselves. You might be familiar with when we are reading Scripture and we come across that word therefore. You know the question? What is therefore, therefore? That's the question that we should ask as we're studying Scripture and we run across that word. What is therefore, therefore? You see, it's an important little word and we don't want to skip too quickly over it because it tells us something. It tells us something very important. As a matter of fact, what it does is it tells us that what follows or what Paul is getting ready to say is a result of or is a consequence of the argument that he has been making in the preceding seven chapters. Now, you ready for a pop quiz? If I were to ask you to turn your bulletin over this morning and to answer this question, what is the central, paramount, pivotal argument that Paul labors to make in the first half of the book of Romans, how would you answer that question? How would you answer that question? I know your quiet times or your devotional times may not be concentrated in the book of Romans right now, but if you just had to take a stab at that, how would you answer that question? What is the central or what is the paramount, what is the pivotal argument? What is the Mount Everest argument that Paul labors to make in the first half of the book of Romans? I think the central argument that Paul's been laboring to make is this. I think he is arguing that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law. I think Paul is doing everything he can, is mounting every biblical argument to make that case. That a person, a man or a woman, if they are justified... If they know Christ savingly, if they are truly redeemed, if they are converted, if they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then they are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law. That's the argument that I think Paul makes in the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. And so, chapter eight, uh, Paul begins to transition. There's a turning point that takes place in in Paul's letter to the Romans here in chapter 8. Because here in chapter 8, what Paul does is he begins to unpack some of the glorious truths, some of the glorious realities that are, a, that are a result of that very argument. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, chapter 8 and the following, what does that mean for us? What does that mean to us? What are the implications of that for us Know Christ, And I think the argument that Paul makes for the back half or in the back half of the book of Romans is that we are secure in Christ. If we are justified by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, then we are secure in Christ. You know, it's interesting. Paul begins chapter 8 by proclaiming no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's bookend number 1 to Romans chapter 8. You know how Paul ends Romans chapter 8? No separation. No condemnation he begins, no separation he ends. You know that glorious text in Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation he begins with. No separation he ends with in Romans chapter 8. The first thing that Paul wants us to know is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we study our text this morning, I want us to begin by looking at a few individual words in verse 1. This is just the way that God's wired me as I study scripture. I like to pick apart words and ask, what does this mean, and why did Paul write this, and what are the biblical implications of of this? Why did he choose this word? Uh, And so let's do that this morning as we turn our attention to the text. First, I want you to notice that Paul says that there is now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation. That word now signals a point in time. In other words, this hasn't always been our status. No condemnation has not always been the status Of the Christian has not always been the status of the believer. That hasn't always been our standing before God. You see, in Adam, we stood condemned, crushed under the weight of sin and death. The law stood against us with all of its legal demands. We were separated from God, enemies of the cross, hostile in our minds toward Him, and we reeked with the stench of spiritual death. We were born that way, right? David tells us that in Psalm 51. He says, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We were born into sin. We were born into the death that accompanies that sin. This now no condemnation has not always been our legal status. If we know Christ, we once stood condemned. And if we don't know Christ, we still stand condemned. Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in your sins and trespasses which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And then he uses these two words, probably my favorite two words in all of Scripture. Tells us what we once were. We were once dead in our sins and trespasses. Two glorious words. But... God. But God, who is rich in mercy. We just read that text in our scripture reading this morning, right? God has lavished us with love. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. Because we deserved it? No. Because it pleased him to do so. Because it was his divine prerogative. Because it brought him honor and glory to do so. But God, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Let me press pause right there and just ask you this question. Is it true of you? Is it true of you? There are millions upon millions upon millions of individuals sitting in church pews this morning who are deceived, thinking that they know Christ savingly, because they prayed a prayer once. Because of their church attendance. Or because of any other fill-in-the-blank reason that they might merit. We don't want to be deceived about that point. Is it true of you that you are alive together With Christ, have you trusted him? Have you anchored your hope in him? Have you turned from your sin? That's what repentance means, by the way. It means to turn from one thing to another. It's the military term about face. It means if I'm facing this way, now I turn and I face this way. Sin was once my master, now Christ is my master. I once walked in the ways of this world, now I walk in the ways of my master. I once bore the fruit of sin, now I bear the fruit of righteousness. The question is, is it true of us? And if we were to take a snapshot of our lives, if we were to take a few pictures or a few moments of video recording, would it prove that fact? Would there be visible, undeniable fruit in our lives that is evidence of a genuine conversion that we have indeed been made alive together with Christ? If it's true of you in Christ, you've been freed from every single legal charge That ever stood against you. That's the glorious implications of the gospel. All the legal demands of the law, which the legal demand of the law was what? Perfection, right? 100% perfection. For those that failed, the legal demand of the law is what? Death. Death. But in Christ, we've been freed from every charge of sin that stood against us, made alive together with Christ. You understand the implications of that? I mean, just just six chapters back in Romans chapter 2, Paul said this. He said that before we came to Christ, before we were converted, that we were once children of wrath, storing up wrath for the day of God's judgment. And so the question is, how do we get from the Romans chapter 2, storing up of wrath, to the Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Well, it's not because of us. It's because of another. It's because of another. It's because of the works of another. It's because of the righteousness of another. It's because of the merit of another. It's because of the victory of another that has been credited to our once bankrupt accounts. Not because we earned it, but because our condemnation has been paid for in the death of another. You see, our justification, if we know Christ, stands on the merit of Jesus Christ's life and his substitutionary death on our behalf. You see, there's no condemnation because guilt and condemnation have been swallowed up by grace. Guilt and condemnation if we know Christ have been swallowed up by grace. A Philip Bliss in a 19th century hymn captured the glory of our divine pardon when he penned these words. This will be a familiar hymn to you. I love the words of this hymn. He says, "Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior! Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned, he stood." Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. There is now no condemnation. That wasn't always our legal status. Uh, Secondly, look at the word no. Paul says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's interesting to note that that word no, though it appears several words into your biblical translation, is actually the first word in the original Greek text. No is the first word in the original Greek text. The original Greek text literally reads, No, therefore, now condemnation. Or, no, therefore, present condemnation. You see, not always, but oftentimes, when a biblical writer using the Greek language wanted to emphasize a word, he would put it at the beginning of a sentence. I think that's what Paul is doing here. I think he's emphasizing the fact that there is no condemnation, none, zip, zilch. Paul wants us to be absolutely clear about the fact that our justification means that there is not the faintest particle of condemnation with your name on it, if you know Christ savingly. Not the faintest particle of condemnation with your name on it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You see, here's an incredible truth that I want to sink deeply into your hearts. No condemnation means this. It means that if you're in Christ, you aren't condemned now and you never will be. No condemnation means that you aren't condemned now if you are sealed in Christ. And not only that, but you never will be. You see, no condemnation means that God doesn't relate to you or to me in light of our performance. Praise God for that. Praise God that he does not relate to you or to me in light of our performance. Because nothing in our lives merits justification. But everything in Jesus' life merits justification. Sinless, perfect, spotless, blameless, without blemish or defect. He is that lamb who rode into Jerusalem to hang on Calvary's cross, to be a sacrifice, to be a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. It's his merit. No condemnation means that God doesn't relate to you or to me in light of our performance. How freeing is that? At the cross, Jesus dealt with all of our sin, past, present, and future. That means that we don't slip back under condemnation when we sin. We don't don't go from not being condemned to falling into sin and all of a sudden now we're condemned again. That's not the way that legal justification works. As a matter of fact, let me encourage your heart with this truth. Romans chapter 8 comes right on the heels of Romans chapter what? 7, right? Do you remember what Paul was talking about at the end of Romans chapter 7? He was talking about his struggle with sin. I mean, here here is an apostle, a man used mightily by God, but he was human. I love the fact that all through Scripture, from Genesis 1 to Revelation to the end of Revelation, God God goes to great lengths, it appears, to disclose, to show us, to reveal the fallenness of man. So that we might not look to a man, but look to the capital M-man as our exemplar. And so Paul, though a great apostle, God used him mightily. As a matter of fact, wrote most of the collective New Testament, struggled with sin. Struggled with sin. As a matter of fact, he's the one that said, I don't even understand my own actions, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't even have the ability to carry it out. For I don't do the very good things that I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the question he answers. Recognizing his sinfulness, recognizing his fallenness, recognizing how much he does not deserve salvation, he says, wretched man am I. And he asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? His answer Verse 25, the very last verse of Romans chapter 7. He says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then what does he say? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm sinful. I understand that. I realize that. I struggle. Who will save me? Thanks be to God, he will. How will he? He will remove my condemnation. Freed from the penalty of sin. You see, Paul reminds us of our security in Christ when he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What incredible assurance we have as believers. Incredible assurance. And you ask yourself, well, Eric, why why do you come to to teach us things that we already know? And that is precisely the problem. Because we know them, they become all too often familiar to us. We cease to be amazed by the truths of the gospel. We cease to be in awe of, of, of the truths of the gospel. They become all too often familiar to us. We need to be reminded. We need to let our hearts soak marinate in the truths and the realities, the glorious truths and realities of the gospel message. The gospel message is not just for a lost and dying world, it's for the church of Jesus Christ. But Satan would love for you to believe the lie that God acts punitively towards you when you sin. He would love for you to believe the lie that you're once again guilty and condemned. Yeah, you were, you were once pardoned of your sin, Satan says. Yes, you were once free from condemnation, but you slipped up again, you sinned again, sinner, you're condemned again, you're guilty again, you're unclean again. Can any of you relate with that? I think if we're being honest, we all can at times. Though we don't legally slip back under condemnation, we buy into hook, line, and sinker that terrible lie from the evil one, the accuser, that we are once again condemned. When God has changed our legal status, once and for all, in Christ. You see, the glorious truth of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, in union with the one who is your righteousness, no matter what your sins are or how often you struggle, just like Paul did, God isn't angry with you. God pulled out, poured out all of his anger, all of his wrath, all of his divine hatred towards sin on Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. God does not act punitively towards believers. He does discipline us when we sin, but he does not act punitively towards us. He does not enact punishment towards believers. All of our punishment was paid when Jesus Christ uttered those final words, it is finished. It's finished. There is no condemnation. He paid our death. God isn't angry with us. He isn't going to give up on you. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to turn his back on you. He'll never abandon you, never deny you, never cast you out, and he will never once again condemn you. Jesus said these words in John five twenty four. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears these words of mine and believes in him who sent me, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. That word can also be translated condemnation. He does not come into condemnation. Why? Because he's crossed over from what? Death life. There is no punishment. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is no condemnation. Write this. If you're a note taker, write this down. And if you're not a note taker, why don't you become one for 10 seconds? Write this thought down. Your freedom from the penalty of sin is as secure as as the righteousness of Christ. Your freedom, if you know Christ savingly, your freedom from the penalty of sin is as secure, is as unchanging, is as unalterable as the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just as the righteousness of Jesus Christ cannot change, so your legal status of no condemnation can never change if we know Him, savingly. What a glorious truth. What a glorious reality. We've got to have that in our minds when Satan draws back those arrows and flings condemnation, guilt, at our hearts. We must understand that our sin, if we... No, Christ changes nothing with respect to our justification before God. Yes, our sin is disciplined by God for the purpose of holiness. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. Yes, our sin does create a break in fellowship with the Lord, but it does not change our legal status. It does not change our legal status before God. It doesn't change anything about our justification. And so then there's the question, well, then can we continue to sin? If, if nothing I do changes my legal status before God, then I can do whatever I want, right? I'll press pause on that. We'll come back to that later. But the answer is absolutely not. Paul said, uh, should we keep on sinning, that grace may abound even more by no means, or by, may it never be so? But neither should we give ear to Satan's lie that we're once again bound by guilt and shame and death when we do sin. C.J. Mahaney, in his brief book, which I would commend to your library if you don't have a copy of it, his book, The Cross-Centered Life, he said this. I think this is poignant. He said, don't buy into the lie that cultivating condemnation and wallowing in your shame is somehow pleasing to God. We do that sometimes, don't we? We think, oh, woe is me, pity party, uh, you know, and we kind of have this warped, twisted idea that's somehow pleasing to God. Or that a constant low-grade guilt will somehow promote holiness and spiritual maturity? Just the opposite. You see, God is glorified and we believe with all of our hearts that those who trust in Christ can never be condemned. It's only when we receive his free gift of grace that we can actually live in the reality of total forgiveness and that we're able to turn from our old sinful ways of living and to walk in grace-motivated obedience. Turn your attention to verse 2. What does Paul do here in verse 2? Paul explains here with greater clarity how it is that those who are in Christ will never see condemnation. He says this he says, for or because, that word can be translated because. Because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why is there no condemnation? Well, because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's two laws at play here in the text. There's the law of the spirit of life, which brings freedom, and there's the law of sin and death, which brings condemnation. What Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, is this. He's saying that we used to be under the rule and the reign and the power of the law of sin. And what did it bring along with it? It brought guilt and condemnation and death. But the Holy Spirit has brought us under a new rule, under a new reign, under a new power, under a greater law, the law of grace. You see, the law of sin and death stood against us. It condemned us to die. It brought us into the exposure of a holy God who must deal with sin justly. And the way to deal with sin justly is to condemn it if you are a holy God because it's the antithesis of his nature, character, and attributes. Habakkuk said, speaking of God, he said, your your eyes are too pure to even look on evil. He's holy, but he's brought us near because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, because of his victorious life and his death and his substitutionary atonement on our behalf. Where we once stood condemned, now we stand free. What is it that set us free from the law of sin and death? Well, it's the grace of God in Jesus Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Side note here. I love the way that Paul describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit here in verse 2. Look at how he refers to him. He refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of life. Does that bring anything else to mind? When you think about the spirit of life, does that bring another text to mind? It does to me. How about Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? You see, the very spirit that brought forth creation ex nihilo out of nothing is the exact same spirit whose power is at work in spiritual recreation through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for all those who believe. You see, the spirit has freed us. The spirit of life has, free, has freed us from the tyranny of sin and death. Well, what is being set free? by the spirit of life, mean for us as believers in terms of the law. Remember, the law once stood against us with all of its legal demands, and it demanded that sinners are condemned because God is holy. That's what once stood against us, the law with all of its legal demands. So the question is, what does being set free by the spirit of life mean for us as believers now in terms of that law? Well, it means that we've been entirely set free from our old relationship to the law. I want you to see our old relationship to the law. Keep your finger there in Romans chapter 8 and turn back two chapters to Romans chapter 6 if you've got your Bible open. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Again, what I want to show you here in three brief texts is our new relationship to the law. This is our relationship to the law in Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says this, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you. Well, that must mean it once did. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's what's true of us as believers. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Look forward one chapter to chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4. Again, talking about our new relationship to the law, Paul says this. He says, Likewise, brothers, You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Well, we once belonged to sin, right? We were once under the dominion, under the rule, under the power, under the influence, under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. But now we belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Why? In order that we might bear fruit for God. see, a truly changed life, a truly regenerate heart, a truly converted person will always bear fruit. Will always bear fruit. If there is no fruit, then what we're looking at is not living. If there's no fruit, then what we're looking at is not living. Look two verses down in verse 6. Again, chapter 7, verse 6, just two verses down. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that or because we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We've been freed from the written code that stood against us. Freed from the legal demands of the law because another has met them perfectly on our behalf. So then, since we're not under the law, we've died to it. Well, then how does God view our sin as Christians? We just talked about the fact that just one chapter back in Romans chapter 7, Paul was enumerating his, his struggle with sin. How does God view our sin now? We know how God viewed it before we came to Christ, right? How does God view our sin now that we are in Christ, freed from the penalty of sin? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrates this well. He says this, He says, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing one of the laws of the United States and the member of a family doing something that is displeasing to another member of the family. You see, on the one hand, a man commits an offense against the state. That's someone who stands condemned. On the other hand, a husband, for instance, sins against his wife. Maybe he's been impatient. Maybe he's gotten frustrated. The husband is not breaking the law. He's wounding the heart of his wife. There's broken fellowship there, but there's no broken law there. You see, that's the difference. For the Christians, sin is no longer a legal matter. It's a matter of personal relationship, and that a relationship of love. You see, for when a husband sins against his wife, he does not cease to be the husband of the woman, neither does a wife cease to be the wife of her husband. You see, law doesn't come into the matter at all. It lies completely outside of the marriage realm. That's the difference in how God views an unbeliever's sin as compared to a believer's sin. There is no condemnation if we know Christ. It breaks fellowship, for sure. It displeases the heart of God. We can grieve the Spirit, but it's not a legal matter anymore. Everything that is legal was settled right there. And one of the challenges of the Christian life is that we look at that And we become all too often familiar with it. And we cease to be amazed as to what that really means for us. The Spirit of Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And number two, if you're taking notes, is this. The Spirit of Christ has freed you from the power of sin. Not only have we been freed from the penalty of sin, but we've also been freed from the power of sin. Look at verses 3 and the first few phrases of verse 4. Paul says this, he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We'll press pause right there. The first thing that I want you to notice here is that every facet of our salvation is God's work. Paul says, for God. You see, there is no righteousness intrinsic to us. We've already talked about that. There is nothing good in us save Christ alone. God is the victor of our salvation. He is the hero of redemption, not us. Paul says, for God has done what the law, weakened in the flesh, could never do. You see, what could the law do? The law could stir up our sin The law could excite our sin, the law can reveal our sin, and the law can condemn us for our sin. But it can never save us from our sin. Trying to be obedient, trying to gut out pleasing God, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, leaves us nowhere but condemned. All that Christ has, all that he is, all that he has accomplished must be deposited to my account. Or there's no pleasing God. Or there's no pleasing God. And Jesus said of Himself in John fourteen six He said, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Me." In other words, interpretation: we can't go over Him, we can't go under Him, we can't go around Him. We must go through Him. There is no other way. It's not a popular message in the world in which we live, but it doesn't make it any less true. One man said this, speaking of the law, he said to run and to work the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands but better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. See, the gospel gives us the hope that the law never could. Well, how did God accomplish our salvation? Paul says this, look at the text. Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and God condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's a lot of commas in there and that's kind of tricky to read and to put the pieces of that together. Let me say this, that text right there, that verse sounds a whole lot to me like 2 Corinthians 5.21. Anybody have it memorized, by the way? 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you don't, I would commend it to your memory. Paul said this. He said, For God made him, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. I usually illustrate this if I'm with somebody at the mall or spending time sharing the gospel with a lost person with my wedding ring, but my wife has told me oftentimes, I wish you wouldn't use your wedding ring to illustrate sin. So I'll use my pen. If my pen represents sin in my hand and my left hand represents the purity of Jesus Christ, what Paul's saying here in our text in Romans and in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is this. God made him, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel in one verse. You want to share the gospel with your neighbors? You want to share the gospel with your family and your friends, your coworker, that person that shares a cubicle or an office next to you? 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's one verse evangelism. We stood cursed by the law, but Paul reminds us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus has canceled the record of death that stood against us with all of its legal demands. How did he do it? He did it by setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities by putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. Sin no longer has power or dominion over you. If you know Christ, grace does. Now, you know what the implications of that are? That means that every sinful thought, action, motive, deed, word is willful and voluntary. Because sin's no longer my master. Before the, there is therefore now no condemnation. Before that was our legal status, we had no option but to sin. Sin was our master. But now, because God is rich in mercy, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive in Christ, I turn from my old master and I have a new master. That means I'm not under the dominion or the sway or the authority of sin anymore. But I'm under the authority and the sway and the dominion of another master. So that makes my sin, that makes my transgression of the law willful and voluntary. I don't have to sin. I sin because I want to sin. That ought to break our hearts, drive us to the cross, and remind us of Romans 8, 1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Grace does. What does it mean that God condemned sin in the flesh What does it mean that God condemned sin in the flesh? Peter helps us out with that. Thankful for that. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says this. Speaking about Jesus, he says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter's probably picking up on Isaiah 53 there, isn't he? By his wounds, by his stripes, you have been healed. You see, God judiciously condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering for us. You see, we sinned in the flesh, therefore Jesus had to come in the flesh. The Word had to become flesh, make his dwelling among us, that God might condemn sin in Christ, in the flesh. We sinned in the flesh, sin had to be condemned in the flesh. So what did God do? He sent us his son in the flesh, that he might live a perfect life, that he might live a righteous life, that he might die the death that we deserve, living the life that we failed to live, and imputing all of his victory, all of his merit, all of his perfect righteousness to the once bankrupt account of the guilty sinner. Glorious. Glorious glorious. You know, it's good to hear messages, and I preach these messages, that are imperatives. You need to do this. Put on, put off. Don't speak this way, speak that way. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Don't commit these acts, do this instead. Those are the imperatives of Scripture, and those are good messages. We need to hear those. God's Word is full of them but they must be influenced or undergirded with all the indicatives of Scripture. In other words, I have to know who I am. I have to know what God says is true about me in the gospel. Now, in light of that, I walk in this way. Now, in light of that, I obey. You see, by condemning sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ, God remains just. And he can therefore be the justifier of all who anchor their hope in Christ alone. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us why God did what he did. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. How did God do that? God did that by condemning sin in the flesh. He sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Well, why did he do it, is the question that we're left with. Well, Paul tells us in verse 4, he tells us, in order or so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And you say, well, Eric, what does that mean? Glad you asked. What does that mean? What does it mean that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? Now, put your thinking cap on for a moment, okay? This is a bit technical, but it's important. Some people read verse 4, particularly this text, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Some read that verse forensically and passively. You say, well, what does that mean? Here's what it means. In other words, they read that text in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and they say this, that because of our union with Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law's demands, now I have perfectly fulfilled the law's demands. Now, true statement. That's what it means to look, or that's what it looks like, or to interpret this forensically and passively. Christ has done what I did not. My union with him gets me everything he did. Okay, that's looking at the text forensically and passively. And I think that that is a correct interpretation, but I think Paul has more in view here when he says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, the keeping of the law, that's God's work. We failed at that, right? Do not eat of the fruit, for as surely as you do, you will die. That was law number one, right? We broke that law. We transgressed that law. You know, we get the word transgression from the word trespassing, right? You, driving along the road, you see the word or the sign no trespassing. It just means don't cross this line. There's a barrier here, and I don't want you on or over that barrier. Well, that's what it means to transgress the law. It means to step over the line, to miss the mark, to go where we're not supposed to go, to say what we're not supposed to say, to think what we're not supposed to, to, to think. To violate God's written word in any way, shape, or form is to transgress or to trespass. God's law. You see, the keeping of God's law is God's work, but that doesn't exclude human activity and obedience. That's important. Let me rewind that. The keeping of God's law, God did. We failed. But just because God has kept the law and the person and work of Jesus Christ and all that has been credited to our account, that does not negate the fact that we as believers don't have a responsibility. That doesn't negate the human activity of obedience. You see, the Holy Spirit has freed us from the penalty and the power of sin so that, so that we can now actually obey God's word. Prior to coming to Christ, prior to the therefore, prior to the now, prior to the no, we couldn't obey God's law, right? We couldn't please God. Apart from faith, there is no pleasing God, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 11, verse 6. Before we came to Christ, there was no faith. So because there was no faith, there was no pleasing God. And so we are saved. God kept the law in Christ. All that has been imputed to my account, but that does not in any way, shape, or form exclude our human activity of obedience. Now, our obedience doesn't gain us any more favor with God. We have all the favor with God we'll ever get because we have all the favor that Jesus Christ has with the Father. You see, we obey God's word, not as one who's under the law, but one who ha- as one who has a renewed heart and desires to live a life that is pleasing to God. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He said, So we make it our aim, whether we are at home or away from the body, we make it our aim to please him. When I think about taking aim, I think about you know, standing at a line and throwing a dart uh, at, at a dartboard. You you, you take aim with that dart and you you toss it and you're tossing it for a particular small portion of that dartboard. Well, think about your life now and go back to the fruit conversation earlier. Does the fruit of your life demonstrate that you're taking aim at pleasing the Lord? Obviously we're imperfect. Paul struggled in Romans chapter 7. God goes to great lengths in Scripture to show us the fallenness of man. But is the overall trajectory of your life aimed at pleasing him? If so, that's fruit. That's fruit, and it's good evidence that we've been truly converted. Remember that Paul was criticized by some uh, people as he shared the gospel. He was criticized as being antinomian. You know what that means? It's a compound word in the Greek. Anti means no or not, and uh, nomian comes from the Greek word "namas," which means law. So Paul was was uh, was criticized as being one who was without law. In other words, you have the Pharisees who are telling people you must live this way and you must do this and you've got to live to this standard. And Paul comes and he says, "No, grace, grace, God's grace, grace. It is greater than all of our sin." And the argument or the criticism that the Pharisees Pointed or aimed at Paul was, Paul, if you tell people that they're under grace, if you release them from the law, they're going to go do whatever they want. They'll be lawless if you tell people that they're under grace. And Paul says, no, quite the contrary. Because it's grace that frees people to truly obey in the first place. What's the motivation to obey? Think about it for a moment. What motivation do you have to obey? It's definitely not law. Does the 75 mile an hour speed limit sign motivate you to obey? Honesty now. No. Grace motivates us to obey. Titus chapter 2, 11 and the following. For the grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. We weren't zealous for good works before we came to Christ. We were zealous for sin. We had an insatiable desire for sin. But now grace has appeared. And that grace motivates us in a different way. teaches us to renounce the ungodliness and the worldly passions and to live a different way, self-controlled, upright, in this present age as we eagerly await the one who's coming to take us home. Paul said grace is what will motivate someone to obey. The Spirit has freed you from the power or the dominion of sin. Third and lastly, we'll conclude rather briefly here. The Spirit of Christ, if you know Jesus savingly, has freed you from the practice of sin. Look at the last phrase in verse 4. Paul says this, he says, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, the purpose of Christ's atonement for our sin was not only our justification, but it was also inclusive of our sanctification. Not only was the purpose of Jesus' atonement for our sin to declare us righteous, not guilty, no condemnation. It was for that. But it also included our sanctification. You see, God desires that we bear fruit for him. And we can only bear fruit for him when we're in a right relationship with him, when we're connected to him. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 5? He said, I'm divine. You are the branches. If a man what? Remains in me, is connected to me and I in him, then he'll bear much fruit. You know, every once in a while, for no good reason, because I'm a wonderful husband, I'd like to think, I will come home and surprise my wife with fresh-cut flowers. They're beautiful. And she, she just is in all that I would think of her, and, and I'm so grateful that she responds the way she responds, and, and I do it because I love her, not because I have to do it. But answer me this question. As beautiful as those flowers are, what's true about them? They're dead. They're dead. Why? Because they're no longer connected to the vine. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains connected to me and I in him or abides in me and I in him, then he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Paul said this in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, just a couple of chapters before our text under consideration this morning. He said, but now you've been freed. You've been set free from sin, and you've become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. We've been justified freely by the grace of Christ. By faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, apart from works of the law, justified no condemnation is the legal status that we might be sanctified, that we might bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's why God's doing everything he's doing in our lives. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? God's always up to something good in every circumstance. What's that good? That we might bear more resemblance to God's son, right? And what is its end? Paul tells us in Romans six twenty-two: eternal life. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Notice that Paul says that the law is fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh. Remember Paul's description of us when we were lost and condemned under the law. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But by God's grace and the Spirit's power, we don't walk that way anymore. True of you? that you don't walk that way anymore. You see, the Christian falls into sin. We all do. Paul did in Romans 7 again. But the Christian doesn't walk in it. He doesn't live in it. He doesn't spend his life in it. It's impossible for those who have died to sin to continue living in it. If we are, we should ask ourselves a set of sobering evaluation questions. What's the proper response to this grace that we've been lavished with in Christ? Well, the proper response is a desire to please God through a life of grateful holiness. In other words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. How did God do it? He did it by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And He condemned sin in the flesh so that we might bear more resemblance to Him. That those who once walked according to the law, who once walked according to the ways of this world, may no longer walk in it. So what's the response? We hear the gospel, all of its glorious truths and implications. What's the takeaway? What's the response? Well, the response is a life of grateful holiness. You see, positionally, you've been made holy. That's a declaration that's already true about you. As a matter of fact, you can't become any more holy than you already are. Positionally. Practically, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, aren't we? So positionally righteous, positionally holy, yet becoming righteous and becoming holy, practically. It's that daily pursuit of holiness. That's, that's my response. It's 2 Corinthians 5.9. So whether we're away from the body or at home, we make it our aim to please him. That's the response. I want to please God in light of all he's done for me. You see, grace is the foundation of our holiness. For the grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. How did he give himself? Well, God sent his Son in the flesh and condemned sin in the flesh in his Son. He hung him on a Roman cross, hung him on a tree because cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree paying all of the legal demands, the law's legal demands for us, remaining perfectly sinless and perfectly righteous, that he might take all of his merit, all of his status, all of his righteousness, and impute it to bankrupt souls such as you and I. That now we might be able to stand alive in Christ, freed in Christ, free from the tyranny of sin, free from the power of sin, free from the penalty of sin, free from the practice of sin. Can I give you another P, though? Because there's another P that we're awaiting, and it appears here in Titus 2 through 11, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth P, and it's not on your outline. We are eagerly awaiting that day when we will once and for all be freed from the presence of sin. We've been redeemed from all of the legal demands of the law, No penalty, no power, free from the practice. But I still yet live in this sinful flesh, don't I? I still struggle with this sinful flesh. But there's coming a day soon when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and he will gather up his own. And he will take us to be with him. And just as we read this morning in 1 John, when he takes us to be with him, we will see him. And when we see him, we will what? Be Like him. Freed from the encumbrance of sin. Freed from the presence of sin. Able to worship the Lord in all the splendor of his holiness without the encumbrance of the sinful flesh. And to that we say, come Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to the day with great anticipation when Jesus Christ will present us blameless, without condemnation, without spot, without wrinkle, without any defect before the presence of his Father with great joy. And until that day, we can sing with great confidence this hymn penned by Charles Wesley. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine. Boldly I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And can it be, is the question. You better believe it. How? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it refreshes our souls as we meditate on the glorious truths and realities of the gospel. May they never become too familiar to us. May they never become common to us. May we never hear them so much that they, that they cease to amaze us. That they cease to leave us awestruck. That they cease to motivate us to unfettered worship. God, in light of all you have done for us, we now bow our hearts before you. You are creator, we are creation. You are king, we are subject. You are master, we are slave. We want to make it our aim to please you with our lives. Until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to take us home, let us be motivated by grace. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.